This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. There goes the fly ball towards left field. Going back fast is Kennedy. Kennedy gets there, and he takes it. And the Cleveland Indians are the world champions of 1948. And they are leaping joyously as they go off the field. Bearden is being mobbed as our rule Boudreau and out of center field, Tucker and Kennedy come running in arm in arm. Little tap up in the air, third base side, waiting is Tommy. Foul territory, the game is over. And the Indians have won the divisional title. Indian fans have waited 41 years. And now they can really cheer. Down the pitch. Swung on, lined to deep left field. It is gone! You should see the celebration! Out of the Indians' third base dugout, Rajay Davis, a bullet, two-run homer, down the left field line, clearing the 19-foot wall. We are tied at six. This is Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. A regular look back at professional baseball history in Cleveland, since 1901 and beyond. Now, here's your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor. Hey, Tribe fans. Welcome back to another episode of Our Tribe History, presented by Progressive. I am your host, team historian, Jeremy Fedor. So we have spring training literally right around the corner, and that means it'll be summer before you know it. And that also means that this podcast will be a bit more sporadic as my other job duties will start to take over. So uh, sorry to break that devastating bad news. Um, (laughs) At least, I don't know. Hopefully it's uh, something you enjoy tuning into or when you have the free time checking out what I've been working on. So, uh, But just throwing that out there that uh, my other duties are going to start ramping up a little bit for the in-season aspect, but that's not necessarily a bad thing because that means we have baseball starting up and what's better than baseball? So that being said, we're going to kick it back to 1903 for another installment of our walk-off winter series. I feel like I've done more than these, but I guess we're only in 1903. It's going to be a good one, though. There's some interesting walk-offs in this uh, this year and when we left off in 1902 we left with charlie hickman hitting the first walk-off home run against the st louis browns and when we pick it back up in 1903 guess who 
it's it's Charlie Hickman. I, I wouldn't have mentioned that walk off, I guess, if I wasn't gonna, you know, lead in with him again. So this game uh, when it took place when Cleveland took on Boston. It was May eleventh, nineteen o three, and during this game, we actually saw five errors committed by Cleveland to Boston zero. The 1903 uh, Cleveland Naps or Blues or whatever you want to call them were not the greatest fielding team in the world. This was only the 14th game of the season, and our friend John Gotchnauer, the guy whose name I have a hard time saying, was already the owner of 13 errors. So uh, thankfully he didn't have a, a Twitter account in 1903. I would hate to see the mentions after... You're 14 games in with almost an error a game. For Cleveland, it was Bill Bernhard uh, that kept him in the game. He only surrendered eight hits with two runs, but when you have five errors, more runs are bound across, and uh, there was a total of five. The Cleveland Plain Dealer then summarizing the game mentioned how uh, Hickman was having a great game. He had three hits, and... For a clean-hitting game, the contest today has not been equaled upon the local diamond this year. I mean, you're 14 games in, so I imagine, yeah, that was probably a uh, astute observation. I like the way that the Boston Globe described the ninth inning. It said uh, manager Jimmy Collins was pulling out all the stops to scratch some runs across the board, and apparently he wasn't too confident it would happen. He sent up Jack O'Brien... This paper said to manipulate the stick for Tom Hughes, the pitcher being the first man up. O'Brien was an easy victim, lining an easy one into shortstop uh, Gonschnauer's hands. So fortunately, he didn't drop the ball there or boot it or do anything to add to his air total. But the Boston team ended up scoring two runs. And during this period, does Jimmy Collins get a pitcher up to face Cleveland in the bottom of the ninth? Apparently, he didn't think that was too important. Paper said that when the side was retired, it was up to Collins to provide a new twirler. He had previously given up the game as lost, and uh, he, they had not warmed up the pitcher Bill uh, Deenan sufficiently, and he was sent to do the final honors. And He was touched by McCarthy for a sharp two-bagger, and then after two men were out and with two strikes on him, Hickman lined one to the fence, easily sending the base runners across the rubber and scoring the winning runs. So that was... Hickman's second walk-off and just a pretty big blunder for Jimmy Collins not having a pitcher warmed up to face Cleveland in the bottom of the ninth. But again, maybe he didn't think that Boston was going to put runners on and actually score. And the next walk-off was actually two days later. Boston was still in town. But as the saying goes, hindsight is twenty twenty. And I say that because only 3,180 fans showed up to watch Eddie Joss and Cy Young go head-to-head. So if you're listening to this podcast, you're clearly a baseball fan or you need something to put you to sleep or (laughs) something of that nature. But, you know, if you're listening to this, you enjoy history, you know some of the names of these great players. And both Eddie and Cy Young are in, in Cooperstown. So to be a fly on the wall for a game like this would just be spectacular and mentioned that both teams actually carried a one-to-one tie going into the ninth when Bedford native Elmer Flick got the job done though this was actually after he nearly lost the game for Cleveland and 
Elmer, as the paper said, almost lost the game for Cleveland. It was during the third inning that uh, the plane dealer said Elmer handed the victory to the Bean Eaters uh, with two out, Doherty singled, and then Collins hit a hard drive to right. Flick reached it all right and received the ball square in his hands only to drop it, and that scored a run. So again, as the way things were trending, that might have been enough with Cy Young on the mound to defeat Cleveland. But fortunately for Cleveland, they actually scored in the bottom of the third, and both teams took that one-to-one tie going into the ninth. The plain dealer wrote that headed into the bottom of the ninth, the spectators were of the opinion that they were due to witness an extra inning contest. And uh, again, you know, being in hindsight, who wouldn't have minded a uh, extra inning contest between Addie Joss and Cy Young again? You know, who knows? That game could have went 19, 20, 25 innings with those two going and uh, shutting down those batters. It would have been one of those games of the ages. But it it didn't go extra innings because with one out, left fielder Jack McCarthy uh, revived the hopes of the fans by singling the center. Then came Flick's chance. He had struck out twice after securing a scratch single in the first inning. But the outlook was not the most promising, but Flick proved the right man in the right spot by slamming the ball far over Stahl's head for three bases, McCarthy scoring the winning run. And the paper mentioned that this was you know, one of the greatest pitcher battles witnessed upon the local diamond. And this actually, you know, I'll agree with their description of the greatest because as I've mentioned before, and as you'll see, every game that is dramatic is the greatest or you know, unique for some nature. But both Joss and Young were in admirable form and wasted scarcely a ball. Upon several occasions, the sides were retired upon five pitched balls. Only one base on balls was given, and that was by Joss in the first inning. Two hits were all that Boston could secure off the human slat, while seven composed Cleveland's total. Unfortunately, however, for Cy, the Blues were able to bunch a couple of hits in two innings and thus secured their two runs. I found it fascinating, too. There was a little tidbit that said it was the 13th day of the month and Joss possesses locker number 13 in the clubhouse. He did not really see how he could lose. So I suppose if players were wearing numbers in 1903, it wouldn't be surprising if Addie was wearing number 13. He didn't seem to be opposed to that number, but... Um, again, those little tidbits that may have been lost to history if it wasn't for these random newspaper articles. And when Cy Young pitched in Cleveland, it was always fun to see the reaction from fans or at least read about it. And previously, uh, the newspaper said that Cy was headed down to his hometown near uh, Newcomer's Town or wherever that, uh, that down by Tuscarawas County, that area, which I imagine in 1903 wasn't the easiest trip like we have uh, now, but he went and visited home on his off day. But uh, the Boston Globe did say that when Cy Young pitches, Clevelanders will post their bank accounts that the veteran Easterner will win. Cy is admired by all, and even by those who would like to see the home team win. Having for years played with the old Cleveland club in National League days, naturally he has a strong foothold here. And when he stepped upon the diamond today, there was a burst of applause and cheering, which continued for 10 minutes. So fans still love Cy, remembered him from his days with the Spiders, and um, again, one of Northeast Ohio's own, or 
I don't know what the southern border of what constitutes Northeast Ohio, but I'm still within the, the range of a Cleveland baseball fan. And with the third walk-off, you could probably guess what, actually, I don't know if you can guess what team it is. It's going to be Boston again. So three walk-offs in a row. Um, well, three uh, of the walk-offs, the first three of the year, were against Boston. And you would think that Cleveland had Boston's number for that year, but they didn't. They actually lost the season series, so it could have been worse. But thankfully, they, they walked those off. So this game was June 18th, and it featured John uh, Gotchenauer's 32nd error of the season. So we're in June. He has committed 32 errors, which, I don't know, maybe there's a whole episode about the, the life and times of error-making Gotchenauer. I don't know. That would be a, a, I don't know if that would be interesting or not. <laughs> but the, the man clearly had problems feeling the ball. But the Boston Globe pronounced this game as uh, you know, the Harry Bay game. He was the sensation of the contest. Said his fielding and batting features of the day, he saves his team twice in one afternoon. Bay's playing was sensational in the extreme. He was the star of the day by all odds, playing ball better than the much-talked-about old-timers. Bay ran bases in trolley car style. Not really sure what trolley car style would... uh wouldn't mean, but I imagine that's a, uh, a a nice way to say he ran the base as well. Maybe we can see that in, in contemporary writing. I don't know if that would translate well. He, he ran the bases in, uh, you know, Cadillac style. I, I don't know what the, uh, <laughs> the equivalent now would be. But it also said he pulled down flies that seemed to be too high for any fielder to reach and taking the game all in all, he was a bigger star than Lajoie or Bernhard or any of the much-touted stars of the Cleveland club. So that's that's high praise, saying he was a bigger star of the day than Lajoie. So in the ninth, it started with Flick singling the left, and then Gonchenauer sacrificed, um, and then Abbott, the catcher, hit a, a sharp one to Winters, which the Boston pitcher handled cleanly and threw to Collins to head off Flick. The latter, who was then almost a third, turned in his tracks and began to execute the Artful Dodger Act with great success. Finally, the entire Boston infield joined in the chase and made Elmer think of the days when he chased the fox over the hills about Bedford. I didn't know Bedford was known for uh, its fox population, but maybe back in the uh, late 1800s there were plenty of foxes. Nevertheless, the paper (laughs) mentioned that. And it said, but it was destined that Flick would not be put out. Ferris had the ball and threw to Collins. And just at that moment, Flick slipped and fell in the mud. Over him pitched Collins, missing the throw. Like a flash, Flick was on his feet. And in less time than it takes to tell, it was on third in safety. Then Cleveland sent Bemis to bat for Bernhard. And Harry knocked any number of foul balls and then fanned. So up came Bay, the hero of the day, and meeting the ball sharply, sent it down the line to Parent, who, without a slip, Parent fielded it to Lachance, but it was a variable streak of lightning that the throw had to beat, and it failed. When ten feet from the bag, Bay gathered himself up into a knot and actually hurled himself feet foremost at the sack, so he slid into first, striking it about two feet in advance of the horse hide, thus winning the game for Cleveland. Flick ambling over the plate with the deciding run. 
So again, uh, another fun way to say slid, uh, beat a, an infield hit to first, sliding into first, and scored the game-winning run on a, an exciting bang-bang play. And the paper was raving about a, a catch Bay made earlier in the game that kept the score uh, close, and the game was overcast with the clouds at times. And it mentioned that there was a ball hit and that many, whoever, however could see it, had made up their minds to chalk down a three-bagger or a home run on their scorecards when Bay was seen to throw out his left hand and stumble on for 20 feet. Immediately, a yell went up. He caught it. He has it. And so it proved. So, again, he made a spectacular outfield catch. And after the game, Elmer Flick said, I've seen some great catches this year, but that one by Bay has topped them all. But again, when you have a team making as many errors as they were, maybe uh, you know they were easily impressed. I don't know. And buried in all this too, uh, in the game notes, it said that the two teams arrived at noon from Boston. This side of Buffalo, the train upon which they ran or which they ran ran over and killed a man. So again, one of those uh, head scratching pieces of information that is noted in the uh the game recaps that the train they were on coming in from boston ran over someone um but uh yeah so kind of struck me as a uh, notable i guess finally we get a walk-off that isn't against boston and this one is june 30th where cleveland was trailing five and a half games back in the standings so they were sitting in a cool third place they were taking on the athletics, and this game apparently was full of controversy as umpire Silk O'Loughlin was all over the place with his rulings. Paper said, To say nothing of another run which he prevented Cleveland from making by virtue of a close decision at first base, which of course he rendered against the locals. He, his balk on the rules, however, was inexcusable. So again, umpire's fault. And what happened was that there was one out with Lajway and Hickman on third and second when McCarthy smashed a grounder to first base and Harry Davis picked it up, touched first, and threw home to get the runner. And then the paper says, McCarthy, however, was coming head down with all his speed for the bag and the ball struck him on the head, knocking him unconscious. Larry and Hickman crossing the plate as the ball bounded to the grandstand it was several minutes before McCarthy was revived and was able to walk to the bench and play was resumed. So McCarthy took a ball to the forehead that sent it into the stands. I have to imagine that was not the uh, most pleasant way to help score runs. However, fans lost it when Silk sent Hickman back to third. So McCarthy was only able to use his head for one run. Paper said, in vain, Lajway, Hickman, Gotchnauer, and Joss protested. All the satisfactions they received was, I called time when McCarthy went down and the run does not count. The truth of it is that O'Loughlin has been praised so much for his good work that, like any person in other pursuits, he has acquired a superabundance of conceit and thinks he is the only umpire on earth, and like certain kings, he can make no mistakes. Woof. Also, I don't know if I'm if I'm gosh now or I'm arguing with umpires. I mean, you can hardly feel the ball, but nevertheless, you're sticking up for your teammates. But all was not lost, though. The A's took three runs in the eighth. Cleveland tied it in the bottom of the eighth. 
And both clubs took a 3-3 game into the ninth where Rube Waddell walked Gonshauer. Uh, Fred Abbott drove a ball to Davis, allowing Gonshauer to advance to second. It was there that Bernhard made one nice dive and was begged to make another and win his own game. Bernie, however, was unequal to the task and struck out. It was now up to Harry Bay to save the day, and most brilliantly did he uh, succeed. The first ball that Rube pitched was just to his liking, and he drove it over over second. With all the speed possible, Gonschnauer dashed home, but faster yet was Ollie Pickering's making for the ball. Gotch was 20 feet from home when the sphere left Pick's hand and like a shot was thrown direct for the plate. It was a perfect throw, but just a half second late, Gotchnauer sliding under the tag. Safe, yelled O'Laughlin, and the protests of the athletics were unavailing. So that uh, run that was not counted when the ball ricocheted off McCarthy's head into the stands didn't necessarily matter. And it was mentioned that uh, in the post-game notes that the blow that McCarthy received on the head Raise the lump as big as a hen's egg. So, yeah, I have to imagine you're going to have a knot on your head after taking a uh, uh, thrown ball, probably not from too far away to the dome, and, and clearly with enough ricochet to go into the stands. And the next walk-off in early August with Cleveland now eight and a half back. They took on Detroit, but... They did have Eddie Joss on the hill, who, again, is a, a future Hall of Famer. With this game, the Detroit Free Press wrote, It'll be hard for Detroit fans to believe it, but it was an undeniable fact that Bill Donovan, their idol, was almost entirely to blame for the loss of his own game today by a score of 5-4. to four. The paper basically said that Donovan was too amped up, and this caused his, quote, anxiety to lead him into a play or two that turned the game against him. In the fourth, he threw away a grounder trying to get the lead runner, and then in the ninth, he also had some issues. So in the, again, that fourth inning, he threw Bradley's grounder wildly to second in an effort to get Bay, who had reached first on a hit. But then in the ninth, with Cleveland down 4-3, to three, Bemis doubled, Gonshauer walked, and then Josh Joss rolled a little one to Bill that, in his eagerness to make a double play, one he missed entirely, the ball rolling to second, filling the bases. Elmer Flick, who had some previous walk-offs, struck out, but then uh, Harry Bay drove one to Lush, scoring Bemis with the tying run. Donovan then gave Bradley four wide ones, so he walked Bill Bradley, forcing Gonschnauer in with the winning run and the game that had looked perfectly safe for Bill and the Tigers was lost. So nothing more exciting than a walk-off walk to win the game. And the paper commended Eddie Joss's pitching, um, especially after that first inning. But Joss, being Joss, had a, a heck of a game. And this next one might be my favorite game of that 1903 season and of the walk-offs because on August 15th, Cleveland won a game with eight errors. Now, I got curious and was wondering how what's like the MLB record for most errors in a game while still winning. I wasn't really able to find it, though I didn't look too hard. So if anyone has uh, or is up to the task of looking that up, I'd be interested to know. So... Winning a game with three errors, I imagine, is difficult, let alone eight errors. And also, during this game, 
uh, John uh, Gonschnauer ran his total to 67. So it's 67 errors. And he was actually on his way to setting an American League record with 98 errors. So again, not the, the best in the field. But the paper called it a sensational game. Blues made eight errors and yet secured their victory. Again, going back, you'll notice I said Blues. The plane dealer seemed to refuse to call them the Naps at this point. The Cleveland Press actually had run the contest where fans came up with the name Naps. And back then the newspapers were competitive. So the plane dealer really didn't want anything to do with the fact that the press ran a contest and people were calling them the Naps. So for a few more years, they referred to them as the Blues. And the plane dealer mentioned it was Moore's third triumph in a week. Ludicrous attempts of New York to catch the blundering base runners. The Blues practically presented yesterday's game to New York, but the present, like an April Fool's Day prize package, had a string attached to it, and as Captain Lajaway refused to cut the string, the victory ultimately went to Cleveland after one of the most sensational games ever witnessed at League Park. So there we have the uh, proclamation that Actually, you know, maybe this actually was one of the most sensational games at League Park. I imagine if you have eight ears and still manage to win, why not? Just call it sensational. Sure. And the description also was phenomenal in the paper. Uh, they said it was a game that was certainly dangerous to weak hearts, and the doctors will undoubtedly be busy for a few days repairing shattered nerves. Old dyed-in-the-wool fans left the park saying that never again did they want to witness such a contest. The reason? They simply could not stand the strain. Boy, they're lucky they weren't around in 2016. <laughs> Certainly, such an in-and-out performance as that put up by the Blues was never seen here before. For six innings, they played like the rawest amateurs. During the remaining uh, for six innings, I think that was a typo, they played like a pennant winners, and there was no denying them at the finish. All's well that ends well, and the crowd of 10,000 anxious rooters went home perfectly satisfied. Not only did the Blues win, but they also broke two of their own records for the season. First, they made eight errors, which was two ahead of their best previous record in this respect. Second, they made it seven straight victories in six days. A record, in fact, approached by no other team in the league this year. Again, not, not a record you want to be breaking, you know, how many errors you can make in a game. But uh, again, and I mentioned for Earl Moore, that was his third one in the week. So I went back and he actually pitched August 10th, August 13th, and August 15th. So over the course of these few days, he went 3-0, giving up 18 hits, two earned runs, nine walks, 16 strikeouts. Opponents were batting 186, and he had a .067 ERA going nine innings in all those games. So... Earl had an arm that was uh, was up to the task. Commending more, the paper said, in inning after inning, he found himself in tight places and succeeded in pulling out, as can be seen, at a glance at the score, which shows a total of but five runs out of seven hits, two bases on balls, a hit by pitcher, and eight errors. Eight errors, count them. Don't it sound nice? But what of it? Cleveland won, and who cares whether the Blues made one error or 50 as long as the game is placed on the right side of the ledger. Flick and Abbott didn't make any errors, so there were two of the players that didn't make any errors. But again, I, I still can't get over that. <laughs> Eight errors, and 
you know, I guess if you can make 50 and still win, why not? The paper credits Flick with a uh, a ball he had uh, an attempt on that kind of turned the, the tide and said when he accepted it, uh, accepted it without a slip, the crowd rose in mass and wondered if it could really be true. That marked the beginning of Cleveland's agreeable reversal of form. Up to that time, the players had been viewing with one another or vying with one another to see who could make the wildest throws or the easiest muffs. But when Flick set such a good example, the others followed suit and the game began to be played as it should be. So again, a little uh, exaggeration there, um, but maybe Flick settled everyone down. I don't know. So uh, they weren't booting the ball anymore, but Cleveland did. Uh, was down five to one going into the eighth when they ended up scoring three runs. And real quick too, uh, one of the errors or one of the miscues of the game was in the third inning when catcher Abbott was waiting to take a, a throw made by McCarthy and the ball struck a, uh, a weird hobby. So the ball struck the bat and bounded into Abbott's face. So again, another player taking the uh, a ball off the face. And in the ninth, Clark Griffith ended up walking Gonchnauer, which seems to be a trend of some nature that A, Gonchnauer gets up in the ninth, and B, that he walks, that magic happens and they walk it off. I was going to say maybe games when he has errors, the magic also happens and they have a walk-off, but he nearly had an error in every game he played, so that can't be be any uh, coincidence there. He just made a lot of... A lot of errors. But Cleveland ended up tying the score and had runners on for Nap Lajway. So the um, outfielders knew that a long fly would score a run. So they moved in a trifle in hopes of catching the ball on the line should Larry succeed in hitting it beyond the infielders. Hit it he did and far over McFarland's head. McFarland gave one look and trotted in, the game being won by Cleveland. Paper mentioned that it could have been a triple had... Uh, the situation been differently, but it was not. And uh, one of those walk-offs where the outfielders kind of looks at it and heads on in. And also to be a, a, a fan of the game, the paper noticed that uh, when Armour uh, was feeding Griffith with new balls in the last two innings, Griff proceeded to spike them on his shoes. Sheridan was obliged to call him down, but nevertheless Griffith kept it up until the finish of the game. While Flick was at bat, Armour passed out four or five new ones as well. So, again, just the blatant uh, again, uh, spiking of the ball, messing them up, making them uh, all kinds of crazy. One of the aspects of the early American League era, National League, Major League, what have you, before that stuff was all outlawed. And finally, we get to the last walk-off of the season, and this was the final home games of the 1903 season and it was September 12th, 1903. There was a double header at league park. And this was right before Cleveland went on a 12 game road trip through Boston, New York, Washington, and Philadelphia playing dealer called it the glorious end of the local season. As Cleveland won both games of the double header and both were great games. The first one being the best that has ever been played at league park this season. So that trumps the other best game ever played at League Park this season. Um, again, I'm still impressed by the eight-error game that they managed to pull out. So this one won't nearly be as cool. 
And for Cleveland, it was Jesse Stovall. Um, he was locked in, and the paper said that. At first, it looked as if it was going to score a not-hit game as six innings came and passed away in baseball history with the Tigers securing the semblance of a safety. Two outs, single, and the next inning ended up ending the uh, no-hit bid, but nevertheless, Stovall was, was dealing that game. And Detroit took a lead in the ninth with uh, Wahoo Sam Crawford taking a, a two-strike pitch, smashing it to right field. That looked like it was going into the bleachers for a home run, but the wire screen in front of the extra stand prevented it, and it bounded back into the field. It was there that Elmer Flick and the center fielder Jack Thoney became tangled up in an attempt to field it, with the result that the run scored and Crawford reached third base but Cleveland was able to get out of it without any more damage. And in the Cleveland's half of the ninth inning, Lajway ended up getting to second on an air, and then Hickman tried to hit another walk-off home run, but uh, ended up striking out. So then up came Thony, who the paper had said had been batting poorly, but he did have better luck. He hit one towards first, which Carr, who was the starting first baseman, would have eaten up but the ball ended up getting away from the man, McGuire, who had replaced Carr. Leary going to third and scoring when Bemis hit safely over second. Then Gonschnauer struck out, and uh, Stovall ended up forcing Bemis. So, again, tie game. Uh, they tied the game after the ninth, and they were going into extras. Without too much drama in the tenth, Elmer Flick led off with a double to right, and he ended up scoring the winning run. Um... Bay attempted a sacrifice, which resulted in an error from McGuire, so that put uh, Bay on base, and then Bill Bradley ended up singling to left, and then that scored Elmer Flick to uh, to walk it off for Cleveland on that first game of a doubleheader at League Park. Cleveland ended up finishing that season third place, a cool 15 games behind Boston for first place in the American League. So not a, not a bad team, not a great team, clearly, when you have one player making 98 errors and not finding a suitable replacement. And that was the last game at League Park for Gonchauer. That was his last season with the Cleveland Club. Um, check out his Sabre bio if you want to know more about his life and career and ultimately the almost 100 errors he made. And as I mentioned before, these podcasts are going to be a little bit harder to get to just because of my other duties uh, in the communications department. So hopefully we'll get a few more out. It'll be a little more sporadic, but we're going to have history being made with another season of Cleveland baseball. So uh, hopefully we'll, again, we'll, get a few more of these out and hopefully we'll be watching some baseball soon too. So until then, thanks for listening and go tribe. You've been listening to our tribe history presented by progressive with your host, Indians team historian, Jeremy Fedor.